This is a CNIB Foundation podcast. The content in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only. It is not legal advice and should not be relied upon as such. CNIB does not make guarantees about the comprehensiveness or accuracy of the content. CNIB and the podcast participants assume no responsibility for how you use the information provided. If you require legal advice about a specific issue, contact a lawyer or community legal clinic. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Know Your Rights podcast where we focus on, yes, you guessed it, knowing your rights. And this is really, uh, I think, an important topic for us to really cover um, in today's episode. And I'm joined by some amazing experts in the field of housing. Now, when we think of housing, we, we think of a comfortable environment that's suited to our needs. But Oftentimes, it can be challenging to, you know, adapt and find the accommodations to make our home comfortable and easy to navigate and even to find a home. So I think I want to start there and I'll leave this open ended to um, our guests here today and I'll introduce you guys as you uh, kind of come along. But, you know, what seems to be the biggest problem um, with regards to accessible housing? Well, from our perspective, uh, our, the, the work we did uh, focuses on rental housing uh, specifically. Uh, and the reason we did that is because for homeowners, uh, they often have more socioeconomic money resources available to them and they can make the change without getting additional approvals. And if they need some financial support, there are grants available. But for rental, uh, rental, um, sorry, for renters, uh, they face uh, a lot of additional challenges and barriers, red tape, if you want to think about it that way, um, because they actually have to go to the rental housing provider and, and get permission to uh, make the changes that might be needed um, for their safety, for their independence, um, for their self-esteem. And many rental housing providers do not understand uh, their obligations under the uh, AODA. I'm just going to jump in here quickly. Um, Nicole, you're a, a professor at Laurentian um, University. Um, you know, so, I mean, the information we're getting here is, is a very kind of credible source. And, you know, can you share a little bit about the, the work that you're doing as a professor um, in environmental studies and how that relates to housing? We have undergraduate students in environmental studies, and I have a class or a course uh, in environment and human health. And there we do talk about the social determinants of health, one being housing is a very important social determinant of health. Uh, but I also teach a course um, on inclusive built environments. And we have a lot of architecture students that, are, that take that course. And in there, we really get right into all the legislation. Uh, we talk about things like um, universal design and how they can apply that. Uh, we talk, we spend a lot of time on what some of the impacts are on people with various disabilities um, in terms of housing. 
that's uh, real, really amazing to know that that's being taught um, at such an academic level about inclusion and things like that. Margaret, you've done some work with Nicole um, in that space. Can you share a little bit of your kind of insight and what that experience was and maybe why you started working in that direction? Certainly, Jacob. I'd be happy to do um, uh, Margaret here. And I started this work actually from a personal um, perspective. I, I live in a rental housing unit and I have a young child and I found out at a young age that she had... Um, She's considered deafblind. So, and by that, she has a very limited peripheral, uh, lower peripheral vision. She is has no night vision, which means she can't see in the dark, and she has moderate to severe hearing loss in both ears. Um, so, she does require um, a variety of different accommodations. And in our home at the time, she was learning on how to um, ascend and descend the stairs that we have in our unit, and she's doing fine except for this small little section. And um, we realized that. Uh, a, she couldn't reach the railing that was currently there, and B, it was the same color as the wall, so she couldn't see it. So I, um, I sent a, a request to my landlord, my housing provider, and I said, I'd like to install a temporary handrail at the cost of $36.35. And I thought it was a very easy request, and it took me eight months before our housing provider agreed to reimburse us for this, and I couldn't understand why it would take me so long. It, to me, it made perfect sense, this request. Um, I was aware of my rights. I knew that my landlord had an obligation, a duty to accommodate this request, and I couldn't understand why it took so long. And so um, I approached Nicole at the university and I said, hey, this is this, this issue that I had. I, what can I do to make this easier for other parents and guardians in Ontario? And the project sort of snowballed from there. And um, we, we sat down and we put together this grant for the Law Foundation of Ontario, the Small Responsive Grant. I'm looking at wanting to talk to specifically the staff at CNIB and Vision Loss Rehabilitation, as well as parents or clients and their process, their journey of getting an accommodation in their rental home with the end goal being to get this toolkit, um, create some toolkits for staff and clients to use. So that's how I got involved in, in housing rights, I guess you could say. Yeah, no, um, I, I, I'm really glad that, you know, you finally got the, the accommodation that you, you were requesting and um, reimbursed for it. And I mean, I guess my, my question here is, you know, with somebody who has a family member um, who requires, you know, accessible housing, how did you go about determining that the type of handrail um, you wanted to install was the appropriate accommodation? That is a great question. We had um, connected with CNIB um, locally, and one of the services that we found out that through like the sister side of vision loss rehabilitation is they do these um, environmental assessments in the home. So she came to our house, she examined my daughter in you know her, in her natural environments um, at, at different times, and that's when she realized and, and she pointed out so she says, "Hey, like she can't a she can't see the handrail because it's you know the same color as the wall, and b she's so tiny she can't reach it." Right. So she goes, the, the fix is to just install a handrail there. And I'm like, OK, that's great. And she wrote up a very nice report. She had a nice letter. And I, I wrote a nice email to them, very polite and forwarded on to the board. And I thought, you know, for sure, we're going to get this. And um, when we met with them and, and my advocate from CNIB came with me to this meeting, it sounded they were they sounded very gung ho. Well, sure, not a problem. And then a couple of days later in the parking lot, I have my my housing um, where I live. I was approached and they said, hey, do you want to move into an accessible unit instead? And the rationale was, well, there's no stairs there. It's all on one level. 
you know, and they picked it, they just painted it and they would love to move into your place instead. And I, I didn't even have to think about this. I said, well, no, this is completely inappropriate. I just need a handrail. And, um, you know, like there are stairs everywhere. This is not going to help my daughter learn how to, you know, use stairs safely and appropriately. So I, I, I told them no immediately. And yet they still gave me, you know, official requests in my mailbox asking me about this, you know, saying, can you, are you sure you don't want this? And I had to write them a letter in response and say, no, I just want the handrail. And throughout this, this eight month process, I eventually had to contact my local MPP and ask them to get involved and see if they could advocate on my behalf. And the whole time I'm thinking, this is, this is ridiculous. It shouldn't take this long. And my husband was so afraid we'd be evicted for, you know, causing a stink and making a, a scene and all the rest of it. And I was just like, no, I, I want them to reimburse us for this handrail. How difficult is that to do? Um, I, I think that answers your question. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and thank you for sharing. I mean, it's always uh, really important to kind of get some some real kind of world experience as to, um, you know, the challenges that people face with getting the accommodations and, and knowing their rights um, with regards to the subject. So, I mean, I guess I have, I have another question um, before we kind of transition to maybe kind of what the obligations are from a legal standpoint would be. But did you offer to install the, the handrail on your own or were you, was the eight month period um, you waiting for your um, landlord to install it for you? Maybe you can just provide a little clarity there. Uh, yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, so we originally wanted um, the co-op um, to do it themselves, to install it. And because they were taking so long and it was, and, and, and whatnot, we just said, you know what, we'll just do it ourselves. So we, and we submitted our receipts and we waited to be reimbursed. And that's where they, they would say things like, well, we need to do a pull test on this. And this pull test costs $1,500. And we don't have it in the budget to, to, to pay for this pull test. Meanwhile, that, that same week, I get a letter in my mailbox saying, here's our annual budget. And we've set aside $65,000 for maintenance. And they want me as a member to, to, you know, to vote to agree to this annual budget. And yet they're denying me a $1,500 pull test. So I ended up having to like um, read the building code in my spare time to determine what this pull test was. And it just seemed like every instance I thought I was getting a couple steps closer to, to getting this reimbursement, they would throw something at me and I would be left having to then, you know, go back to the legislation and, and read it. And then, you know, you know, my poor husband is like, are you sure this is, you know, the hill you want to die on here? And I was like, yes, because I know they have a legal obligation to reimburse us and to provide this accommodation. So it, it was a, a lot of back and forth, this constant having to like look up stuff in my spare time while, you know, raising a child and working full time as well. Um, and I think they were maybe trying to wear us down, maybe, or hoping we would go away. And that's kind of in our research um, where we interviewed staff uh, from CNIB and Vision Loss Rehab. Uh, we found a number of reasons that parents, parents and guardians either give up for in terms of advocating for their right in terms of a home accommodation, or they um, don't even start the process. And so we found things like a lack of knowledge, uh, refusal for um, the help from the CNIB, because, you know, they're happy with just having a home and they don't want to rock the boat, uh, those types of things. 
uh, that they have a lack of time and energy and this idea of advocacy fatigue because often the parents and guardians aren't just advocating for home accommodation, they're also advocating for educational supports in the school system. They might also be advocating for transportation uh, rights and all that. So this idea of advocacy fatigue can set in and the idea of the fear of reprisal and eviction. Um, and that goes to this precariousness of their, their tenancy arrangements that they often have. Yeah, no, I think that's a that's a really good point. And, you know, for any type of, I guess, advocacy, I mean, it has to come from, it has to start with yourself. And that's really where self-advocacy comes from. You have to be your biggest proponent. Um, there's certainly some amazing um, resources and institutes that are available to lend helping hands, but you have to have the internal motivation um, to, to push forward. And the, the sad reality is a lot of times, um, as you mentioned, Nicole, people just wear down. Um, it, it's, it's a long, arduous process that is exhausting. And as you've said, Margaret, there's always, you know, another kind of loophole to, you know, hop through or wall to break down. But uh, first of all, I do want to just say, um, you know, I'm really, really happy to know that you did get the accommodation um, that you were looking for. And I hope that it really uh, made a difference um, to your daughter and she was able to, um, you know, kind of uh, navigate the home in a, in a much more um, accommodated fashion. Yeah, it was. I, I managed to get a little video clip of her using it for the first time. And when I go to Nicole's class to meet with the students, you know, especially the architecture students, and I share that thing, this is what an accommodation looks like. And this is how happy a child is having it. I think it really hits home for the students as to why it's so important to have these accessible built environments. So I guess that kind of segues into um, kind of introducing Alyssa here, who's um, legal counsel. Um, and I'm sorry, Alyssa, do you mind just introducing exactly um, what your role is with your institution? Absolutely. So I am the executive director and general counsel at CIRA, the Center for Equality Rights and Accommodation. And we're a nonprofit organization that works to advance human rights in housing and the right to housing. And we've been around for 30 years doing that. And the part of our work that connects most directly with the conversation that we're having here today is first the, the work that we do serving clients who are facing human rights violations in the context of their housing and, and looking for resolution of those issues so that they can remain in their homes. And we do also uh, quite a bit of public education to develop materials for both for individuals who are looking to do some self-advocacy or understand their rights and also for uh, housing providers who are looking to better understand their obligations. Amazing work that you guys are doing and extremely relevant to the conversation today. So I guess, Alyssa, from, from your perspective and expertise, um, you know, once again, I think we're all really happy that um, Margaret got the accommodation she was looking for, but it seems like it was an unreasonable amount of time um, to be reimbursed and uh, initially an unreasonable amount of time to have the unit installed in their home. What's the duty of the landlord to accommodate um, their, their tenants on that front? Great question. And maybe maybe I'll just sort of take it back a little bit and, and uh, sort of contextualize that question a little more. So, I mean, the starting point of all of this, and, and I think the foundational principle 
where all of this conversation starts from is that everyone has the right to equal treatment in where they choose to live. They have the right to be free from discrimination in housing, and that includes obtaining housing, staying in their housing once they find a place to live. And these, all of these rights are rights that come to us from the Ontario Human Rights Code, which is a very comprehensive piece of legislation that protects individuals from discrimination in a number of areas, including housing, but also employment and services. And it protects people on the basis of a number of protected grounds or characteristics, including, but certainly not limited to, race and gender and disability, sexual orientation, et cetera. And so the right to receive accommodations comes to us through the Ontario Human Rights Code, which is this very important piece of legislation. And it it is a piece of legislation, unlike many other, unlike most other pieces of legislation that has primacy over other laws in Ontario. And I think that's really important to keep in mind. It, it It has a very special status as a piece of legislation. And it also, uh, because of that, cannot be waived or changed through, for example, a contract. Nobody can contract out of their rights and in their human rights. And so landlords can't opt out of that. And I think that's that's just a really important piece of, of context for folks to understand. And so when we talk about accommodations, what we're talking about is changes to existing policies, rules, barriers, et cetera, that might need to be adjusted to make sure that going back to sort of where we started or where I started, that no one is disadvantaged and everyone has full and equal access to the areas that are protected by the code, in this case, housing. So the way that that process is supposed to work is that if somebody requests an accommodation from their landlord, the landlord needs to engage with that person that individual or group of individuals to have a conversation about the accommodation. They need to have that conversation taking account the individual's specific circumstances. So there is no sort of one size fits all approach to accommodation and the process of figuring out what is required in each person's individual circumstances intended to be or should be a collaborative process between the individual requesting the accommodation and their housing provider. And any accommodation should take into account the individual's dignity, their needs, concepts of integration and full participation. And in the context of housing, should center the individual's rights to privacy, comfort, autonomy, and individuality. So all of that is included in the the accommodation process and, and expected part of the process. Once the plan for accommodation has been decided on, the housing provider is required to pay for the or make arrangements for that accommodation to happen, to implement it, and to pay for it up to the point of what's considered undue hardship. And I think we that might be a, a point to come back to a little bit later. Uh, but I do want to come back to your question about Margaret's, Margaret's situation. We at CIRA regularly help individuals and advocate on, on their behalf to obtain accommodation in the context of their housing. In my experience, and I've, I've been doing this work now for just coming up to two years, I have been surprised at how long these processes take. Surprised and disappointed in how long these processes take. And I think just going back to Nicole's comments at the beginning of our conversation, I think a lot of it has to do with misunderstanding, not understanding rights and obligations, rights of, of individuals in, in housing and obligations of housing providers. I think there is a tendency for housing providers to view their 
housing that they provide purely as a private commodity and to not understand that it is provided, it is to be provided subject to certain very important qualifications, which is doing so in an equitable manner and, and in this case, accommodating people's needs. And so there's a, there's a huge gap from what we see in terms of what people ought to do. So I think Margaret's experience is certainly not, I think, how, how this process is supposed to work, but it is, in my experience, not atypical, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I think that that's um, very true with a, a lot of facets of, you know, um, what human rights um, stand for. I think, you know, from my experience personally and also um, having many conversations like this, I, I think the biggest issue is the lack of knowledge and understanding um, from both parties involved. And I think that, that creates this kind of... Um, impasse as to what the next step should be, you know, is putting a, a railing, to use uh, Margaret's example, uh, reasonable? Um, is there, you know, maybe there could be another type of accommodation that would be, um, mind you, you know, the expense seems relatively reasonable uh, for what it was, but, you know, that might be, um, you know, less invasive to the property or, you know, at a reduced cost, things like that. So I'm, I'm just wondering, Alyssa, you know, how does one determine what the appropriate accommodation is, um, you know, from a legal perspective? You know, I think maybe um, the, the railing, I think, is very reasonable, but just as a kind of um, an idea here, what if there was a, a ramp that needed to be replacing all of the stairs in the home? How would that be assessed um, from a legal perspective if that is a reasonable accommodation? It's a great question. And so I think generally the law is very open in terms that it, it's not directive in terms of what an appropriate accommodation is in a particular circumstance. It really defers to the individual making the accommodation to determine what is best in their circumstances the limit to accommodation is what the law provides. And, and that limit is that language of undue hardship, which I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago. So the obligation of the housing provider is to accommodate the individual with a disability and their request up to the point of undue hardship. And, and there's a couple of really important, it, it's a really important term, and there's a couple of really important elements of it. Maybe I'm uh, interrupting here before you were going to define it. Just I know we speak a lot about this on this series, but if this is anybody's first episode, I think it's a really um, keystone term for people to understand, um, with especially regards to this topic. Absolutely. So I was just about to sort of flag sort of the most important elements of it that I think answer your question. So undue hardship is the sort of the threshold where the legal threshold where a housing provider's obligations end, where a housing provider's obligations end in terms of making an accommodation. So it is always a factually sort of specific question. And, and so you can imagine if a case were sort of proceeding before the Ontario Human Rights Tribunal, the question that would be asked before the tribunal was, did we hit the undue hardship threshold? Has this housing provider accommodated to the point of undue hardship. And the way that the law looks at the question or the, the threshold of undue hardship is that it's an extremely high threshold. 
And it effectively means that either the cost of making the accommodation would be so high that the viability of the business would be in jeopardy, or that making the accommodation would result in health and safety issues that could not be ameliorated in a way that would, again, not threaten the viability of the business. So if those two, if one of those two things has not happened, you have not hit the undue hardship threshold. So it is, it is an extremely high threshold. And the fact that an accommodation might cost money more than you would like to spend as a housing provider is not enough to say no to the accommodation. That would that could put you offside of the uh, duty to accommodate. Right. And I mean, another thing as you're talking, and I think I just want to reinforce quickly before I move on, is that's really important to know um, that, you know, the that duty to accommodate um, and undue hardship um, kind of threshold is really set to, to protect us, to make sure that we are able to um, kind of have reasonable accommodations. Um, and it, it's really, um, from what I've heard from many stories, very challenging to hit that threshold. Um, so guys, if you are kind of in a situation like this, um, obviously reach out to um, you know, different institutions to find out more, but don't be shy and, and make sure to advocate for yourself. So I mean, kind of segueing into the next point, um, you know, Margaret's um, landlord um, wanted to, per, you know, um, I, I can't remember exactly the name of it, but there was some type of assessment, the poll test. Um, what is the poll test? It's to test to see if the handrail is installed so that it can take a certain amount of weight. But there's a little caveat in that particular section of the building code that says if it's in a single dwelling unit, then the pull test is not required. And um, so, and I, yeah. And so, and, like, and I made sure I read that multiple times. I had other people read it because at this point I was even beginning to question if I understood it correctly. And um, they, they, they all kind of agreed that, yeah, this is a single dwelling unit. Well, what, why do they need this pull test then? Yeah, uh, thank you for for clarifying. And I think, I mean, that's, it's, it's a good question. Like, is it reasonable for a landlord or a building corp to say, we need, okay, we, we agree with the accommodation, but we need to, um, you know, I guess, evaluate whether or not there's going to be repercussions down the road. It seems reasonable, but at what point is it, um, you know, just a, a process of delaying and adding expenditure to the accommodation? It's tough to say because these are, like I mentioned earlier, it's it's always really at the sort of discretion of sort of a court or a or a tribunal hearing a case like this to determine whether whether it was reasonable or not in the circumstances. So it's it's really hard to know whether in this particular case it, it would be. I think it's it's important if a housing provider is if the process is taking a long time. I would think that a housing provider would want to demonstrate that delays were caused by good faith attempts to solve the, or to, to work on the accommodation. They'd want to sort of be able to demonstrate that they were in sort of a fairly constant dialogue with the individual requesting the accommodation and that the requests and additional information were reasonable and and really related to the ability to do the accommodation. I would think that things like, you know, long delays in responding, 
and sort of a, a, a real kind of incessant amount of questions that don't really seem relevant to uh, getting to the solution would would demonstrate that they're not putting in a good faith effort to resolve the issue. And of course, if there was any sort of history of, of past behavior that would, you know, with, with other tenants that would demonstrate that this is, is not just sort of a, an individual case, but they, this is sort of a thing that they, or a pattern of behavior would, would not be helpful in that regard. So, at this point, we've been talking about, um, you know, homes that are already built um, and require um, accommodation uh, to, you know, fit the needs of the individual who's living there. But, you know, um, I'm, I'm wondering what kind of, I guess, responsibilities are on the, the point of a developer in building an accessible home. And maybe, Nicole, you, you might have some perhaps some insight on this, um, especially with um, kind of what you're, you're teaching to your students. I'd be very interested in hearing on that. It's a very good question. Um, and I am going to uh, let Alyssa uh, talk about the legal aspect. Uh, but um, there is a key thing that we need to remember, especially in terms of rental housing and um, accommodation, is that uh, we need to remember that rental housing providers are, so it's diverse, right? It can be private landlords, it can be housing corporations, it can be co-op housing, as in, in Margaret's case, and it can also be social housing provided by a city, for example. So um, there, and that means that there's many different uh, levels of knowledge, if you want to think about it that way, in terms of what is required. Uh, and for private homeowners, um, the challenge is, uh, as I think Alyssa put it beautifully, that, you know, they think of their, they don't think of the, ho uh, the housing in terms of, they think about it as a commodity kind of aspect, but not like as a social good. And we need to think about housing as a social good and, and, and the requirements. The other thing though, I think we need to remember is some of these accommodations um, in terms of rental housing, uh, there's a different situation if let's say a student is renting one bedroom from a, a family, let's say, or a couple, um, and they're all sharing the kitchen and the common those common areas. So I'm I just I'm I'm going to let Alyssa talk about that legal aspect, but I think it's really important that we realize that that there is when we're talking about caveats, there is this kind of caveat as well. Thank you, Nicole. That's a really important caveat that that I didn't mention in my in my earlier comments about sort of the legal obligations and and you're absolutely right there is a there is a real gap in the law in terms of its protections or lack thereof for people living in shared accommodation situations so it is the case that the protections of the human rights code including the duty to accommodate but also uh, the protections against sort of discrimination and accessing housing as well don't apply in the context of shared accommodation. So again, that's when a, an individual is looking to rent a room and share a, a bathroom and or a kitchen with the landlord. So that's a, that's a big gap in the law. And I think 
just going back, Jacob, to your your question just a few moments ago, I think there's also a gap in the law as it relates to or the law or the laws <laughs> generally um, when it comes to sort of development of, of housing and ensuring that we have an adequate supply of accessible housing. Because a lot of these issues could be could be solved with some building code requirements. But there is a significant gap in the building code in requiring accessibility standards and and certainly the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act does speak to, it does, it does speak to standards of accessibility as it relates to housing providers of a certain size. And that size is defined by the number of employees that they have. So it's a little, it's a little bit of a roundabout way to get there. But even notwithstanding the protections in the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, there is a real question about how those standards get enforced because it is not a piece of legislation that has an enforceability provision. And so it really does leave a gap in the law insofar as being kind of a tool to achieve some of these accessibility requirements. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's there's so many kind of factors that kind of play into to housing. And one thing I do want to um, kind of bring up is we talk about, you know, living in a space. But what about before getting to the space? Um, I can recall, and as um, some of you may know, listening to these episodes or watching these episodes, um, I have a visual impairment myself. And um, even, you know, with my functionality, there are certain aspects of, you know, just day-to-day life that I still find challenging and have to accommodate and self-advocate for. I was, I, when I was renting my first uh, apartment, I couldn't see the rental application. Um, I'm just wondering how this falls into this topic. Um, you know, I have my own accommodations and luckily um, people who could help me complete it. But if we don't have the, those type of resources and um, I guess relationships to, to help with that, What's the, the process? And, and from also what I recall, it was a very time-sensitive issue to get the, the, the condo. Um, you know, especially in Toronto, it's a crazy kind of um, almost like, you know, stock market type, you know, buy, trade, sell of condos. Um, I was told that I had less than 24 hours to give back the, um, the application before they were going to give it to the next applicant. Um, what's the, the responsibility um, on on a landlord to uh, make accommodations, both to be able to complete, I guess, from a visual perspective, and also to extend any timeframes um, for people who require that. Um, Alyssa, what are your thoughts on that? Again, sort of just going back to first principles, the right to equal treatment and the duty to accommodate to the point of undue hardship applies to housing but but if we unpack that a little bit it applies to the process of looking for housing it applies to the rules and procedures related to obtaining housing it applies to certainly the the enjoyment and use of the unit and and maintenance and repairs and also the services and the facilities that are provided so if you if if that's your starting point, uh, which it is, that, that's where the law the, the law starts off. That would be asking, requesting an accommodation for an alternative way to apply for the unit on account of a vision impairment and being unable to sort of work with the forms or formats that are provided would be a, a, a very I think reasonable accommodation to request. 
and very much within the, the landlord's scope of a duty to accommodate. And, and as would requesting additional time to, to fill out or to provide whatever, whether it's paperwork or perhaps a deposit, et cetera, et cetera, to the landlord. So those, both of those, I would think would be very reasonable accommodations to make and that a landlord would have to demonstrate again that not providing those would cause undue hardship. And I, it is difficult to think of how that would cause an undue hardship if we, are, if we go back again to the threshold of either costing so much as to affect the financial viability of the business or causing a health and safety issue that can't be remedied. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I want to kind of segue um, the conversation towards, I guess, the research that um, Nicole and Margaret are, are doing. I, I'd love to know a little bit more about, um, you know, kind of the, I guess, the findings that you guys are, are finding and the, the work that you're, what are you kind of um, looking to get out of this research? Um, I'm really interested to hear what, uh, what you guys are, uh, are doing out there. So this is a community-based research project. Um, and it's, it's that because we worked with the CNIB and their, their family of, of institutions, if you want to think about it that way, uh, right from the start uh, in terms of, of this research. And so the result is, so after we did a lot of analysis and came up with themes and verified the themes and, and that type of thing. The result is we have a 24 page toolkit to actually help staff um, assist parents and guardians through the home accommodation process. So the toolkit is called um, the I, AHA, and the, it's E-Y-E-A-H-A. Speaking of funny acronyms, and uh, it stands for individualized accessible home accommodations. Uh, and although Margaret and I were the main researchers, we really benefited, project benefited from the skills of uh, some practicum students from Laurentian University. So Matthew Duek and Evie Velikova did some fantastic work. So once we came up with the toolkit, uh, we sent the toolkit and it's been legally vetted by Arsh Disability Law Center. And it's been sent to key people within the CNIB family of organizations. They've read it and provided enthusiastic feedback. Uh, because of the, some of the grants we got, the toolkit's gonna be available in both official languages. It's in a variety of modalities. So there'll be electronic copies hosted online hard copies and braille copies in all Ontario uh, branch offices and digital audio copies as well. Uh, the toolkit contains tear off pages and checklists for staff. So one of the things you were talking about was um, when you're told, well, we don't have the budget for that. So we have this uh, section called what to do when. So it's if the rental housing provider says this, this is an appropriate response and, it, and it's grounded in the legislation. So for example, if, it says, if they say changes can't be made because there's no money in the budget, well, we go into the duty to accommodate and what's, what's needed and that housing providers are expected to investigate and access outside sources of funding 
where they exist to help defray the costs associated with the accommodation. Uh, so there's these types of kind of tearaways that they can, they can use. And we also wanted to provide some things that they could give to parents. So the list of themes I gave you about why parents give up the process. Um, Margaret talked about, you know, um, her, her partner had some real concerns, right? So we have that in a diagram that the staff can just take off, you know, rip off or, or make copies and give to their clients. Um, we have pages to help parents and guardians know what the process is, what to expect. And um, so we're at the point where it's almost ready to release to public. Uh, we just have to make some final fine tunings from some CNIB key uh, people. Uh, and we want to ensure the toolkit gets to the broader community. Um, and so anyone can email me and ask for a copy of the toolkit or give feedback on the toolkit. And uh, yeah, so we're really excited. As Margaret said we started three, three odd, three some years ago. Um, we've had a number of challenges in the, in the project and having it at this point. Um, and, you know, we want to do some training as well with uh, staff about the toolkit and how to use it. So it's, we're, we're on the cusp of being able to share it really widely. This sounds like an absolutely amazing resource that I wish was available in so many other scopes. And hopefully um, this will inspire um, other um, researchers and advocates um, to, to do so. I mean, you guys have been working on this for three years and put together and kind of summarize that in 24 pages. <laughs> Margaret, how did you guys go about kind of consolidating all of this information into 24 pages and having it, um, I guess, legally vetted? Well, as uh, Nicole mentioned, we had an amazing um, practicum student this past summer, Evie, science communication major um, from Wrench University, and she did um, a fantastic job of taking all of our our notes and Nicole and I had like, you know, written notes and, and diagrams and just like and a variety of different modalities and whatnot. And she made it into this very beautifully aesthetically pleasing package that is also um, accessible, um, you know, so that it'll be, you know, available to use like as a digital audio um, material or whatnot. And um, yeah, it's, it's just a lot of hard work, a lot of conversations and meetings and whatnot. And um, there was one little finding that I did want to touch on because I don't think you can really have a conversation about housing without talking about guide dogs. If you'll, uh, if you'll give me a few moments on this. And this was a, a conversation that um, we didn't set out to have with any of our participants. It just sort of rose organically in our interviews. And, um, you know, and, and with our participants, the experiences that they had with housing providers, either as an advocate or personally, how did you not with the fact that housing providers did not want to rent to um, to owners with guide dogs? They took issue with the fact that they had to provide the safe relief area for the dog. And, and so by that, I mean that they were actually unaware that as part of their duty to accommodate is they have to have this relief area available for guide dogs on the property. And this area needs to be safe in all manners of weather. So, for example, 
you may have a nice grassy patch at the end of the driveway and that's a great spot you know in the summer months but come winter if that's where the snowbank is going to be because you get a lot of snow and some snow puffins fry then that's no longer a safe area for either the owner or the dog and they also suggested um that came up with like you shouldn't have your release area in like a very you know, across the busy parking lots, it needs to be easily accessible to get to. It shouldn't be near the garbage cans if in order to get there means having to walk through garbage or potentially broken glass. So these are all things that we hadn't, um, we hadn't really thought of, which, you know, when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. It's, it's quite necessary. And the other really, to me anyways, that I found really interesting had to do with um, local city bylaws. It came up a couple of times in conversation that some communities actually had bylaws on the books um, excused guide dog owners from any uh, from complying with any local poop and scoop bylaws. Interesting enough, which I did not know. Um, so yes, uh, and we do mention that we do touch a little bit about the rights of guide dogs within the toolkit as well. I wanted to ensure that that was included because that is an important component when it comes to housing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I I did not know that. Um, so I, I think that just kind of furthers the point that there's so many um, of these factors that just I guess most people don't think about. Um, even those who require the accommodation, you know, don't necessarily know where to get the information to even start to think about that. So, I mean, typically at this point in the episode, I would start asking where people can find information about the topic, but it seems like you guys have been preparing for this for about three years now. And um, it's, I mean, this seems like the, you know, the Bible of accessible housing almost that you guys have curated here. So when it is kind of released, is it something that people can access directly through CNIB or is it best to contact either one of you? Um, it will be available through the CNIB website, as Nicole mentioned earlier, and we will, um, part of our funding through the Laurentian University Shirt Knowledge Dissemination Grant is paying for the hard copies in the different languages, so English, French, as well as Braille, and those will be physically available in the CNIB Ontario offices. Okay, excellent. The point where I'm kind of at with this is it seems to be such a difficult topic to cover in its entirety because there doesn't seem to be a right or a wrong answer to anything. And I mean, I talk a lot about, um, you know, filing formal complaints in terms of discrimination as an absolute last resort a resort um, to an issue. You know, typically, and I, I strongly believe this, is in order for us to, to make change, we need to educate not only ourselves, but other people as well. And that's where this whole concept of advocacy and self-advocacy comes into play. And, you know, um, I mean, Alyssa, in, in what circumstances might somebody file a formal complaint um, with regards to housing? It's a great question. And, and, you know, just to respond to your earlier comment, I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, as a lawyer, I would say that the law can be a, a bit of a blunt instrument at times. And I have, in a variety of circumstances, seen discussions that possibly could have resulted in a positive outcome for both sides, kind of halted by the initiation of litigation proceedings. So I think it's just something to kind of keep in mind that that it can be a bit of a blunt instrument. But, you know, the law is there to protect people. It's there for a reason. And people can access 
the legal tools and remedies that are available to them at first instance or at any step along the way. And so typically when we work with individuals who are looking for accommodations, we reach out on their behalf to housing providers as informal sort of non-legal advocates. We don't provide legal representation, but we work as zealous advocates for their human rights issues nonetheless. And we work with them and the housing provider to try to negotiate an outcome. Because we know that, like I, like I just said, the, the law can be a bit of a nuclear option for the housing provider if they're on the receiving end of a demand letter, for example. And also those processes take a lot of time. You know, Margaret talked about taking, you know, eight months for an accommodation to be processed. I mean, imagine what that would have been like if the courts had gotten involved. It would be eight months before you even had a scheduled date and then, <laughs> you know, making its way through the process. So we're talking, you know, years in, in, in many cases. So, you know, people people can use the law and, and there's, you know, when things aren't proceeding in, in a way that appears to be appropriate or whether it's in terms of timing or whether the response is, is not an appropriate appropriate response. But our approach is, you know, at CIRA is to try to work to negotiate a resolution to get people what they need as soon as they can. Yeah, I think that's always, you know, a collaborative resolution is always uh, usually the best resolution. Um, and, in, and I'm sure you can speak to this better than I can. In, you know, rare circumstances, things tend to progress. Um, you know, with all of these topics that we cover on this, um, this series, you know, as I was mentioning before, knowing what you're entitled to, knowing what the responsibility of the other party is so important, but approaching things um, in a very um, calm and collected manner is going to get you so much farther than slapping somebody with a demand letter initially. I really do want to reinforce the fact that it's important to um, to know what your rights are, but it's also important to help others understand what your rights are. Um, and typically, you can get a positive outcome through a collaborative approach. So, Alyssa, if people want to know more about CIRA, where can they uh, find you guys online? Thanks for asking. You can find us. Uh, our website is www.equalityrights.org. We have a telephone hotline that you can reach us at at 416-944-0087. And that's open 9 to 5 to serve clients. And you can also find us on Twitter at, at CIRA Ontario. Wonderful. I'll, I'll be, we'll be sure to put the, uh, the links and information in the description. So just before we wrap this up, I always like to open it up um, to all of our participants today um, for any last remarks or any topics that are particularly important that we may have skipped over in the discussion. Um, Margaret, do you have anything that you'd like to add? Thanks for asking. The, the one thing I would add is one of the sort of tearaways we have in our toolkit is a sample letter on how to write that initial letter to your landlord or housing provider. And we do talk about, you know, making sure it's polite and having a friend review it and things like that. So I think that will kind of help with starting that process when you're talking with your landlord or housing provider. Yeah, absolutely. How about yourself, Nicole? I think it's important to realize that you can actually, you know, bring in your uh, CNIB staff, worker, person who did the environmental assessment um, as people who can help you through the process. Um, and they won't be as emotionally attached and therefore they may help you, you know, it, it, it can be a very emotional process. So they can help you with tone um, and that type of thing. The other thing I want to mention, um, 
you know, we've been talking in terms of rental housing about just like your unit. But I think it's important, like for the big apartment complexes, there are common areas, right? Like the laundry room, an exercise room, perhaps. Um, a lot of places might have a, you know, a place where you can all get, your tenants can gather. Um, and those spaces also need to be thought about. And I know, um, Margaret, maybe you can talk a bit that when you, when the person did your environmental assessment, they looked at both the interior and exterior, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, they did look at the interior and exterior, and we did have concerns with our external stairs. And um, three years later, they are, we're still waiting to have them fixed, interestingly enough. Um, but yes, it, 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 they look at the whole package. So like from, you know, for in our case, it was like from where we would park our car to how we get into our unit and all throughout our unit as well. So they do a, a great job of making it as all encompassing and, and um, thorough as possible. Yeah, uh, that's also great to know. So yeah, guys, don't be shy to reach out to the CNIB. Um, excellent uh, hub for information and resources. And lastly, Alyssa, what what any kind of uh, closing thoughts on the on the topic you'd like to share? Just to maybe take it up to a, a little bit more of a policy level, the federal government in Canada in 2019 passed the National Housing Strategy Act, and in that act, recognized and committed to progressively implementing the right to housing. This is a really exciting thing. I think, and, and I think it's really good news. It's, it's good news on a lot of fronts, but I think it's really good news on, a, on an accessibility front because the right to housing as it's defined in international law, which is, is where we get the definition from nationally, includes things like affordability, habitability, security of tenure, and accessibility. And so the federal government has, as of just about a year ago, committed to a policy of ensuring that the housing that is developed in Canada adheres to these principles. Now, there's the mechanisms through which individuals can bring forward concerns about whether or not these this is happening are still in the process of being built out. But I think it's really important that everybody know and understand that our federal government has made this commitment. And I think that I think that people ought to get very serious about holding the government to account and to account for these commitments that it's made. And we already have in Canada uh, at the city of Toronto, the first municipal government that has done the same. And I am very hopeful that there are more to come. So I just wanted to sort of highlight that really important development. And I think we're sort of at the beginning stages of really building out and creating a culture of the right to housing in Canada that includes accessibility. And, and I hope that some of the folks who are listening to this or who, who will listen to this, look into that and, and sort of take up that cause because I, you know, rights as, as, you know, many of us know, you know, in order for them to mean anything, we have to claim them. Yeah. Can I, can I just add something um, at that level? So we also, you know, in terms of the, at the federal level have a national accessibility act. And it kind of really dovetails quite nicely what you said, Alyssa, because um, there are currently um, some of the committees, the standards committees are formed, um, but in you know, subsequent months, more are going to be formed. And they're looking for consultation and representation from people with a variety of disabilities. And so, you know, if that's one way you want, you can 
one way you could get involved um, with some of these issues is trying to is getting on one of those standards committees and or when the call come out, um, provide your in, input. Yeah, I, I think really, really great points. I mean, I, I've learned so much um, in this episode from everybody. So thank you guys for participating in this. And I guess with the last thoughts um, that I, I typically leave on these is, you know, I think at the end of the day, it's so important to advocate not only for yourself, but for others. And that's where this idea and notion of policy change comes in. Because when we when we take when we experience adversity, there's also an opportunity. And if we can turn adversity into opportunity, then we create real change. So guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, don't forget to know your rights. For more CNIB Foundation podcasts, visit cnib.ca slash podcasts.